Hey there, Kubrick fans. If you like what you hear during this episode, be sure to visit our website at thekubrickseries.com for more episodes and uncut interviews from the series. And you can also consider making a one-time or recurring monthly donation in any amount of your choosing if you'd like to support our podcast. That's thekubrickseries.com. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Kubrick series Uncut. In this episode, we speak with author Tony Magistrali. Mr. Magistrali is a professor of English at the University of Vermont. He has written several books about Stephen King, including Stephen King, America's Storyteller, which includes a piece entitled Why the Shining Still Matters. I, I find that in investigating these movies, uh, The Shining is the most fascinating of these titles for me because it's... I'm getting the the most kind of wild uh, and, and diverse theories about the film and what it mm-hmm. means, and uh, yeah. and but and yet you can watch it as kind of a straightforward horror film. So it's the most deceptively cryptic of his movies, I find. Nice, nice comment. I mean, you know, it, The Shining's on everybody's list of top ten horror films of all time. Mm-hmm. And the reason that it, the reason it's on that list is precisely for what you've just said. It's got all those, it's got all the trappings of the haunted house. I mean, one, one thing that strikes me is that is that King as well as Kubrick have left us a legacy that is is a kind of that are kind of cultural reference reference points. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and I think these are the kind of cultural reference points, like well, somebody like Steve Jobs from Apple, for instance. He's had that kind of impact on the culture. Right. Uh, maybe, maybe the Beatles have had a similar impact on the culture. But King and Kubrick strike me, and King even more so than Kubrick, because King has not only created a uh, a pantheon of, of of films that have been adapted from his work, but he's also had a tremendous influence on writers, uh, mm-hmm. you know, who've grown up reading his work. Uh, and and Kubrick is is I think you know a, a little bit more rarefied air than King, because he's less the populist. But what he what he loses in the populist sentiment, he makes up in terms of filmmakers' appreci and critics' appreciation of his genius. Right. I think so too. But but th- this brings up a, a an interesting question. Um, what made Kubrick right for The Shining, and what made him the wrong director for that book? <laughs> okay, oh boy, <laughs> right, right to it, huh, Jamie? <laughs> right, okay. right for the jugular, yeah. Right to it. Well, all right. First, first of all, um, you know, uh, I don't know if you know the history of all of this, but let's go over it briefly. That when King found out that Stanley Kubrick was going to adapt the first bestseller that he'd published. He was ecstatic. And I think that enthusiasm was so intense that King could only lose that enthusiasm. He could only fall from the height that he was at mm-hmm. in terms of his in terms of his impression of Kubrick. And 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 this this fall was precipitated by Kubrick's rejection of a screenplay that King wrote for his novel. Mm. Now that screenplay eventually became the screenplay that King used for his 1999 uh, television series on ABC called The Shining. Right. And and of course, you know, I think that anyone who views Kubrick shining up against King's uh, teleplay, or let's let's call it the miniseries that ABC showed, is you know it, it doesn't take much to realize that Kubrick made the right choice right. in writing his own screenplay. That King's teleplay is far more focused on um, is far more focused on the the slow de-evolution into madness that King objected to in Kubrick's rendition. Mm-hmm. So much so to the point of where it gets tedious. 
Mm. You no. know, I, I'm I'm not alone in this, and I, I want your take on, on sure. this as well. But uh, it took me a long time to warm up to Kubrick. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, everybody, right? This is a cold guy. Everybody <laughs> always says that. This is a cold filmmaker. And that was one of the motivations for me doing the series. I wanted to I wanted to discover what I've been missing. Okay. Uh, and I, I've since uh, gained an enormous appreciation of his work. And The Shining was the the prime example of of why I couldn't get into Kubrick's movies uh, previously, because like a lot of people, <clears throat> my complaint about the film was that it strayed too far from the book. Everything that made the book special in terms of character and, and development. Uh, uh, was kind of thrown out for the film. Well, let, let, Jamie, let's remember what film what film scholars are always saying about adaptations mm-hmm. that it, it's apples and oranges. You know what happens in a novel is is its own entity. What happens in a film is the entity of the director and the you know, screenwriter and the person who's doing the adapting. You know if if we stay with King for just a minute. The best films that have been made of King's work have been adapted by people other than King. Mm-hmm. All you know, think of them all. You know, the, the Shawshank Redemption, um, Stand by Me, Carrie, um, The Shining, The Dead Zone. Every one of these films has had a different screenwriter than Stephen King. I think what it is. Is like a lot of people. I was too focused on what the movie wasn't, as opposed to what it was. You know, what mm-hmm. what what is this movie? What what is he trying to show me here? What yes. points is he trying to get across in the film? So right. I, when I stopped resisting it, I, I fell in love with it, and it's it's now. Well, my the film the film could work the film could work on its own, right? It mm-hmm. could have it, it could have its own integrity because you weren't trying to apply. You know, a, a definitions on, onto it. You know, you allowed it. Right. Eventually, you got to the point where you allowed it to just have its own integrity. Mm-hmm. Apart well, from King, right? Well, Sorry, in terms ahead. of in terms of King, you you do find this uh, kind of uh, the, the the mountaintop in his his work in the in the horror genre and the gothic genre, don't you? You think that this one will stand the test of time? Above all the yeah, they, I mean that's one of the things that I've I've written about in that new book that that, that we were talking about uh, mm-hmm. uh, Stephen King, America's Storyteller. That I think that you know I, it's now we've now got enough time. There's been enough time since Kubrick's film and and King's novel. Uh, really, the careers of both men have essentially passed in front of us, and now we're in a position where I think we can make judgments. Some judgments, some level of judgments. Maybe it'll be different in a hundred years from now. But you and I don't care about that. What we right. care about is what we've got right now, and we're at a point thirty years later, forty years later, where we can look back on this and we can say, okay, of all the works that all the all the work that Kubrick adapted, of all the work that King has had adapted into film, that this is in in many ways the pinnacle for both of these artists in terms of their creation of a gothic horrorscape. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that, that for, for King, the, the Shining is the richest of all of his texts. And for Kubrick, The Shining is the, the most gothic of all of his texts. How does, how does because you've obviously spoken with King uh, yeah. about his, about his breadth of work, um, how does he rank The Shining among his own works? Now, are we talking about the novel or are we talking about the film? The, no, 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 the, the novel. I'm so sorry. Um, I, I think I think he's I, I think he's still very proud of it. I think he he knows it was important and it is important. He knows that this is the book that's most often taught in classes. You know, when when King is brought into the uh, into the classroom, it's usually with uh, either on writing, which is of course his memoir of the the craft of writing, or The Shining. Those are primarily the book the books that come in, unless they're going to unless it's a literature and film class where you have somebody doing something like, for example, The Shawshank Redemption. That, that that's an interesting work for both as a novel and as a film, mm-hmm. but. 
when when I think King looks back at his career, I think he sees The Shining as as as, as a pretty important work. But I also think he he looks at it as an early work that he was in 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 some ways he was just really getting started at the craft. And there are flaws in this. There are flaws in this book, just as there are flaws in every book. Uh, and I think King would be the first one to say, okay, you know, I, I, I wrote a good novel here, and I'm proud of this novel, but I think it was a way in which it kind of it, it kind of kick-started my career because it comes early. Mm-hmm. But, it, but it deals with, with, uh, with a plethora of, of themes and ideas, uh, King's book, and, and, and a lot of these ideas are carried over into, into Kubrick's film. Yeah. Uh, in that it's about it, it's kind of a portrait of uh, corruption in America, in a way. Uh, it deals with a, 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 a failing marriage, yep. kind of the, the the arrogance of of males. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> no, and this is and this is common. This is common to both of their works, isn't it? The, yes. the potential yes. violence and that arrogance. But their worldviews. How do you see that their worldviews kind of differ? Well, you know, we could go as far as the worldviews of both of them. We could go back to talking about um, the, the the 3 a.m. calls that Kubrick used to make to King <laughs> from England to to Bangor. You know, where he would call King up when he was adapting this film, and he would say things like, "Do you believe in God?" And King's answer to that was. Well, yeah, I, I think I do believe in God. And Kubrick said, Kubrick's response to that was, I, I don't, and would hang up. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, imagine, imagine being awakened with a, with a conversation with Stanley Kubrick that, that, that took that, that turn. Uh, I don't. Um, I, I think that, you know, and, and, that, and that, that really is, it, it's more than just a, a humorous aside. It's also one of the things King complained about in Kubrick's mm. adaptation, that Kubrick simply didn't believe in the supernatural, and that's one of the reasons why he couldn't create um, a, a kind of persuasive uh, afterlife that that fed the energy of this place. What Kubrick did instead, and this is kind of King's interpretation, was to focus more on the domestic tragedy that ensues between Jack and Wendy than the well what do I want to call it the 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 matrix of the issues that are at work that are but domestic tragedy but also supernatural influences right well Kubrick believed that if I'm not mistaken uh that just the idea that there there was a supernatural that that ghosts existed was in itself an optimistic idea, sure. Because that means that there's something after. Exactly. Uh, and I, I think that's what he rejected. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, look, look at look at the way in which the ghosts appear in The Shining. Even let, let, let's let's take let, let's let's analyze this for just a couple of minutes. The sure. ghosts appear in The Shining almost invariably reflected through mirror imagery. Mm-hmm. Every time the hotel speaks to Jack, it's primarily through a mirror. Even the images, like think of the image of that bathroom in room 237, where Jack walks in and sees this beautiful woman who turns into the old hag. Where does that come through? It comes through the mirror. So there is this sense, I mean, one could make the argument from a filmic interpretation that there is the sense that every time Jack encounters the spirits of the hotel he's actually encountering a, 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 um, an interior vision of himself an interior version of himself mm-hmm. you know and that's, and, and that's the mirror's reflective imagery that, that's such a dominant feature all through The Shining. Every one of the moments where Jack encounters the ghosts, it's always in bright light. You know, and this is a great thing about Kubrick. This is a horror film that launches its horror in, in, in 
the bright lights of lavatories, bathrooms, um, hallways, uh, you know, lounges, bars. All of these things take place. You know, they don't take place in the attic. They don't occur in a basement. They don't occur in the demi light of a of a of a closet. These things take place in red bathrooms with intense bright light. And but also always, just the nature. I'm so sorry, but just, just yeah, the sure, nature of King's, King King's story itself. Uh, I mean, we're used to our horror, uh, especially horror that kind of deals with themes of uh, uh, ca- cabin fever and such. To to be claustrophobic. That's yeah. the nature of the story he created. It's not claustrophobic. They're 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 yeah. in this big, expansive resort. Yeah. Know. Yeah, no, yeah. that's a good that's a good point, Jamie, but I would argue that one of the things I find so attractive about Kubrick's film is the way in which the it, it's almost as if this is a film that moves back and forth between claustrophobia and the kind of wide open views that you that you're arguing. You know, you mm-hmm. get those moments, for instance, where, you know, uh, you see this expanse of the, the Colorado Lounge. When when Jack's on the steps with Wendy and he's going, give me the bat, give me the bat, give me the bat, Wendy. And the camera's looking over Jack and you can see the expanse. It's almost as if you're looking over a mountain range, okay? Mm-hmm. But at the same time... You get these moments like when Danny's moving down the hallway and he encounters those dreadfully, um, you know, dreadfully disturbing twins that are the, the twin girls that are cut up, you know, all, all around him. You know, you, you, you get the sense of, uh, again, the claustrophobia um, that Wendy experiences when she's in the kitchen. Uh, listening to uh, the report of that missing woman in the mountain, in the Rocky Mountains, that they're searching for, whose husband has been separated from her, from her for days. Mm. You know, it, it's a psychic claustrophobia, far right. more than it is a, a, a physical claustrophobia. It's a psychic claustrophobia in Cooper. And I do, I, I do recall uh, in your article, you you actually wrote about the bedroom. After Jack goes to in the film, after Jack goes to room two thirty seven and visits yeah. Wendy, and how they're they're you know they're in the middle of this expansive hotel and yet their living quarters are very cramped and claustrophobic. Exactly right. No, notice how much notice how much of the action of the important action in a film that has vast moments of where nothing happens, vast moments of kind of empty space and empty time. But notice how, when, when when really important moments occur, it's in lavatories. Mm-hmm. How often how often bathrooms feature in this film? Mm. And well, you, you know, know all the implications. Sorry, Jimmy. Right. Go ahead. Right. Uh, you know what's interesting to me? You were talking about the the the, the, the concept of the mirrors earlier, yeah. as he uses in the film. Uh, you're absolutely right. And the last time I saw the film, uh, I, I, that struck me. Uh, every time an apparition appears, it's in front of a mirror. You're, you're absolutely correct. There's that scene where he's walking before he enters the gold room and sees Lloyd for the first time. He's walking yeah. down the hall. There are four mirrors, three or four mirrors down the hall. Every time he passes a mirror, he has this physical reaction. Mm-hmm. And then, then he walks into the bar. He's faced with mirrors. He covers his face. And all of a sudden, the mirrors are, are covered by alcohol bottles, and there's Lloyd. Yeah. So I, I, th- I think it's pretty clear, clear as day that that's how Kubrick intended it, as an extension of his own personal demons. Yeah, um, I, I, I think so. Yeah. But yeah I, I think that, so. There's not that kind of ambiguity in the King novel. It's clearly supernatural forces at work. Yes, yeah, that's right. And and don't forget, in the King novel, uh, King worked very hard, and this is one of the reasons why he was so upset. You you do understand that he, he was so upset with Kubrick's version and has said so many negative things over time that the only way Kubrick would give him back the rights to his own novel so he could do the 1999 miniseries on ABC was if he if he promised, if he signed a contract that promised that he would never talk about The Shining in public again. Really? <laughs> Isn't that something? <laughs> wow. 
Yeah, I know. That that that's that's how vociferous King's criticism has been over the years of Kubrick's film. And well, now he, I know he, the, now I know the answer to the interview request I just sent for Stephen King. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean if you if you look there's a I, I wrote a book uh I wrote a book back in two thousand and three called Hollywood's Stephen King. Mm-hmm. And in that book the first chapter is an interview that I did with King. And it's a very good interview because we talk about all the film adaptations that have been made. Well, not all of them, of course. There's there's almost almost a hundred of them now, but we talk about a lot of them. And we and I and I really get King's take on Hollywood and 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 his sense of how the relationship between writing a book and and writing a film and and the influence that all these things have had on him over his over his career. But if you look at that interview, which took place over essentially two days of interviews with King, you will not see any mention of The Shining. Mm. The Shining mm. is not part of that interview. And there's a reason for that. I absolutely <laughs> wasn't aware of that. That's amazing to me, but yeah. but, but not surprising. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. And, and in terms of the filmmaking process, I mean, you mentioned that Kubrick would call him up in the middle of the night with these random questions. Uh, but when when you have a film, uh, when a film is ad- is adapted from your work, um, I mean, you, you basically have to let go of your baby unless you're invited yeah. to become part of the creative process. But especially when Kubrick adapts your work, I mean, the ultimate auteur, uh, you're really zero part of the process. But yeah. King visited yeah. the set, didn't he? Once. <laughs> That's a that's a good question. I'm not sure about that, Jamie. I I couldn't answer that with any authority. I don't know that. I know he was a big part of the set in Mick Garris's version of the in in 1999 when they filmed it actually at the Stanley Hotel where King got the original idea. Mm. I know he was on the set a lot. So tell me what what view the the, the book. Um, has a, 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 about one of the things we were discussing earlier, which is the the corruption of of America, kind of the capitalistic nature of America. Well, that, that's that's been an evolving. It's been an evolving interpretation that I've had for oh, at least a couple of decades now, as I've taught the book and as I've taught the film. And you know, I must I, I I I'm embarrassed to say this, Jamie, but I think I probably have seen The Shining 50 times, mm. and I've read the novel at least a dozen times. And what I've always found interesting about both the film and the novel, because they go at it in slightly different ways, is the subtext. And I think the subtext of both, and, th- and this is really why I felt very compelled, <clears throat> excuse me, to write that chapter, Why the Shining Still Matters, in Hollywood Stephen King. I'm oh, sorry, not Hollywood Stephen King, in, in, the, in American, American Story Storyteller. Yeah. yeah. I, I felt the need to have to go back to finally, this, this is really, this, I don't think I will write about The Shining ever again now, because this is what I wanted to say about the way in which these, the, the, both the film and the novel have talked to me about essentially a tragic ideology. Uh, I think both of them are, in different ways, tragic perspectives on um, post-World War II America. Uh, insofar as, you know, there are a lot of ways to talk about this. That's why I wrote that chapter. But basically, it's the idea of... Uh, um, a management, um, a corporation, if you will, that essentially tries to seduce a low Anglo-Saxon male with the promise that America has always offered to corporate men, that of wealth and influence. And I think in King's novel, it's even more pronounced than it is in Kubrick's film. Because Jack is more of the writer in King's novel than he is in Kubrick's film. And what better way to seduce a writer but to promise him immortality mm. and to promise him bestsellerdom and to mm. promise him a writing project that's going to 
provide uh, not only the su a subject matter worthy to his artistic skills, but also the kind of fame and fortune that's attendant to that publication. And 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 that's that that for me became one of the most important aspects of reading the subtext of the of the Shining. There's a reason why the ghosts are interested in Jack, and 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 I borrow a little bit in that in that chapter from Frederick Jameson's wonderful essay on historicism in The Shining, mm -hmm. uh, you know, where where Jameson talks about um, the the class conflict that's at work at the Overlook Hotel, um, and that Jack that Jack himself is kind of caught between classes. You know, in the sense that here's a here's a man who is essentially working class in his role as caretaker. And all the people that he associates with at the at the hotel, uh, a wife who's unemployed, who's essentially a housewife, uh, a ghost who's a bartender and another ghost who's a former caretaker. All of them are at the same level that he's at, essentially servants of the hotel, management. And yet, on the other hand, you've got a writer here, highly educated. In King's novel, he's been published in Esquire. All sorts of promise. You know, The desire to be not just working class, but to be part of that upper echelon that runs that hotel of moneyed America. Uh, you know, to to join to join that upper echelon, um, that that percentage of Americans that is 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 the minority but controls the majority of the wealth that that Stephen King now belongs to, ironically, mm -hmm. yeah, and and Kubrick too. Well, what strikes me in the movie about the Jack character <clears throat> is how completely kind of. Uh, Ineffectual he is. He he's never seen working at the hotel on the hotel property. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he's writing, but you know what is he writing? <laughs> you know, yeah. He's writing a, a thousand pages of the same line. Uh, right. He he doesn't succeed in his task uh, by by the movie's end. Mm -hmm. um, so he's he's a lot kind of more proactive and self-aware in the novel. Yeah, I, I, I think so, and that's just I think that's just the dimensions of the novel as compared to a film. After all, even even a Kubrick film can only go on for two hours and forty minutes. <laughs> you know, and, and King and King has, you know, essentially five hundred pages to work with and even more if you include the prologue, which was uh scrapped from the first edition of, of The Shining because Doubleday thought it was too long. Uh, but it, it is a, essentially a two. I've read it. It's a. It's about a 200-page history of the hotel. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting uh, take on the history of the hotel and and the way in which the hotel uh, has seduced uh, successive owners uh, who have have gotten involved with it. Well, I have heard. I've spoken to a few people, including. Uh, an ABC uh, news reporter, Bill Blakemore, that wrote this piece on on The Shining, the film, uh, really investigating uh, the genocide of the American Indian. Mm -hmm. And then I, I've spoken with Jeffrey Cox, who's an author yeah. of a, a book. On I, I, I know Cox's book, The Wolf at the yeah. Door. The Holocaust analogy uh, yeah. as it concerns The Shining. Do you see that as a difference between uh, the novel and the film and that Kubrick seems to be using the hotel to express something about America and our kind of bloodlust in a different way than King? Well, let's talk about that for a minute. First of all, I think Cox's book, The Wolf at the Door, is really fascinating. Um, I, I think that in the end, his argument doesn't hold up. Because it becomes too, it becomes too involved in the minutia of events in Kubrick's film. Uh, and let me let me be more specific about this. Um, his argument seems to he he wants to write and he wants to write a book that essentially argues that Kubrick was obsessed with the Holocaust, 
and, and I think that's probably true. I mean, after all, Christina was what the 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 daughter of a, a, a or not the daughter, but a niece of one of the Nazis, a Nazi officer right. in World War Two. And here you've got Kubrick, a Jew, an American Jew, married to this woman. So you know, th- th- there was that kind of fascination, and of course, the Holocaust would have interested Kubrick for a lot of reasons, not just because of his Jewish heritage, but to come back to Cox's argument for a minute, it's a fascinating argument, especially when he talks about the fact that Jack drives a Volkswagen and that blood that seems to get off at the ground floor in the lobby that everybody keeps seeing and that has absolutely no explanation to it in Kubrick's film. You know, that, that sea of blood that pours out. Presumably, it has to do with the violence that's taken place over time at the hotel. But Cox wants to read that as as genocide. That's the blood of genocide. And yet, then Cox goes on to talk about these numerical formulations that that I still can't make any sense out of. I do not know. Forgive my language here, Jamie. I, you probably can't use this, but I don't know what the fuck he's talking about there. Yeah. You know, it just doesn't make any sense at all with these numerical formulations. Seven, seven doors, four windows equal 11, and 11 was the number of the wolves that Hitler had at his chateau in, you know, in the Bavarian Alps. You know, I, I sat there and said, oh, my God, such a fascinating argument has just gone to shit. Yeah. It just you know, fell talked, apart. We've talked a lot about the numerology in the film, uh, and he was one of the people we talked to about it. The number 42 that appears uh, throughout the film. And, and you know, knowing Kubrick, I wouldn't doubt there's there's some kind of resonance to reoccurring numbers in his film, as kind of analytical as he was. And, you know, I, I always bring up the idea that it's no surprise that the film The Shining ends in a maze. Yeah. And that, that's what's one of the yeah. clues into into how to view the film. I mean, but you've got to be more that, you've yeah. got to be more persuasive in your ter- interpretive evidence of what those numbers mean. Right, right. and that's right. the problem. <laughs> that's where the that's where the argument collapses in on itself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But this is the, let's give let's give Mr. let's give Professor Cox his due. I mean, he's raised a very interesting uh, element to, to talking about Kubrick shining as a study in genocide it's just the american indian the american native american genocide that's really at the heart of kubrick's film far more than the nazi genocide yes yes that's really what's at the heart of this film and cox doesn't give that enough play he mentions it but he does not go into the kind of detailing that would have made that argument more persuasive and, so here's and, my question yeah. Uh, is is that aspect uh, present in the King novel? I just repurchased it. I, I read it many years ago, and I'm going to read it again. But especially in that prologue of how the hotel uh, was first erected that you talked about. No, no, I don't. I don't think it's nearly. It, it's nowhere near as explicit as it is in Kubrick's film. My God, the hotel's built on an Indian burial ground. Hmm. You know, like like every great horror novel, there's got to be an Indian burial ground. You know, and and that that's it. I mean, you know, that starts it off, and then you then you've got these wonderful appropriations of 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 Navajo culture that just festoon the hotel. Right. You know, every, every everywhere from the sculpture to the wall hangings to the borders that are on, and of course, you know, you you've read that chapter that I that I wrote on in in uh, America's Storyteller, where you, mm-hmm. you've got a black man being essentially murdered on top of an Indian uh, on top of an Indian design on the floor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you've got this you've got this kind of I mean, you want to talk about holocausts. You know, if it's possible to make the plural for Holocaust, because you know a lot of a lot of Holocaust scholars say there's only one Holocaust. But if you if you can if you can expand that definition of the Holocaust to include what what 
what the white man did to the Native American and what the white man did to the African American in the history of this uh, of this country. Then you've got an interesting metaphor that's at work there with Halloran being murdered on top of this Indian design that's been appropriated by the white men who own the hotel. Right. That's what always uh, I was always caught by with, with the film The Shining in that he worked in many different genres. And so when he decides to do a, a gothic horror story, I mean, he throws in so much that is truly horrible. Uh, genocide, racism, uh, abuse, uh, you know, arrogance. Sexism. Yeah, exactly. Yes, yeah. yes. That's, that's yeah. an avenue. That Child I abuse. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. All, all, of the, those, the, all of those issues are there. And, and, the and I... I'm sorry. No, please finish your thought. I'm sorry. Um, I've I've always wanted to make the argument that all of this is under the umbrella, again, because I want to read this as a as a kind of quasi Marxist interpretation, uh, that all of this is under the umbrella of a kind of uh, uh, of a kind of patriarchal capitalism that's at work at the hotel, and that's the reason why. The hotel is attracted to Jack and not to Wendy and not to Halloran and not to Danny. Because what do what do these three people represent? Well, <laughs> one is an African American, the other one's a woman, and the other one's a child. I mean, that this hotel goes to the only white male that's available there is is interesting. And mm. and, and not and not insignificant. Mm. It's it's portrait of marriage. Uh, that, that's another aspect I wanted to sure. discuss with you. Um, in the book, uh, as, as it's reflected in the the miniseries, uh, he, he's married to you know a very attractive uh, blonde uh, woman. In the yeah. movie, they obviously go a different way. <laughs> yeah, boy, that's what for sure. You, yeah, what do you think that represents? For, for me, I, I, when I see that. Maybe that's an extension of how he views his own failings as a husband. Well, Shel- the, the act of casting Shelley Duvall in that role. Yeah, I think I think there are a number of ways of reading that, Jamie. Uh, one one approach might be that you've got Jack Nicholson as the main protagonist of this film, and to bring in a woman, um, for example, suppose you bring in a woman like Rebecca De Mornay who played Wendy in the miniseries on ABC. Mm-hmm. She's going to she's going to take some of the power away from Nicholson. Mm. What 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 you've got in Shelley Duvall aside from somebody who really needs a shampoo all through the film. What right. what you've got in Shelley Duvall is essentially a dish rag of a foil for for Jack Nicholson. Mm-hmm. Uh and it allows Jack to become, you know, clearly the center of Kubrick's universe within that film, far more than in King's novel, where the center, it seems to me, is on Danny uh, more than Jack. Danny right. is really the heart of the novel. Um, and, and I think that the, the fact that, well, I mean, I don't want to make any generalizations about Kubrick here, but Kubrick has a very, very difficult time in all of his films portraying loving sexual relationships mm-hmm. you know mo- most of the sex that goes on in Kubrick is illicit I mean look look at look at Eyes Wide Shot you I read your God. article comparing those two that was very good right. you know right. I'm, uh, even even Eyes Wide Shut suggests that there's you know that that the that the, re- that the real the libidinous charge of sexuality is to be found in illicit sex not to be found in the, the the domestic bedroom between a husband and a wife. Mm-hmm. And and I think that that's probably true all through Kubrick's canon. Uh, it's even true in The Shining. Look at look at the charge that Jack gets when he walks into room two three seven and sees that wonderful long legged thing that comes out of the bathtub. Yeah, you know, and, and in nineteen well, let's face it, nineteen eighty. You know, this is a this is a frontal nudity in a, in a in an R-rated film in a mainstream film, and Jack responds appropriately. You know, he's very excited, 
never in any point in the in the rest of the film does he ever uh, express similar uh, excitement towards his wife. Mm-hmm. In fact, you don't even see them kiss anywhere in this film. I mean, they hold hands in the beginning of the film, but there's not a there's not a lot of love that goes on between Jack and Wendy, nor is there a lot of love that goes on between Jack and Danny. He doesn't. He never wears a wedding ring in the film. He's never shown wearing a wedding ring. Nor is any other male in the film. Yeah, interesting. I never noticed that. But nice point. Nice um, point. And it and it reflects what we're talking about here. Uh, that that in Kubrick's universe, generally speaking, the sexuality has you know carries its greatest charge when it's illicit. Mm-hmm. You know, rather rather than when it's domestic and and legitimate. And isn't that funny too? Because, I mean, b- by all accounts, he was uh, uh, married for forty years, yeah. surrounded by women, a, bu- a beautiful <laughs> wife, yeah, yeah, beautiful, talented, artistic wife. But in his canon, uh, you know, in his canon, I mean, there's a reason this guy was drawn to Lolita. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's the same reason that that Wendy and Jack never do anything of a sexual nature. The only time these two come into contact with each other is to beat the shit out of each other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's never it's never to express any kind of emotive or romantic affiliation. I, I suppose the act of being an artist and creating art is in itself uh, a form of optimism. Uh, but with The Shining, the, the film The Shining, obviously the novel, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Holleran kind of comes in, he's, he, he, he helps to save the day, the, the resort blows up, the overlook blows up, uh, the, the, the movie is a bit more ambiguous, but can you, can you fathom that it's a, an optimistic ending in the film because Danny perhaps... Uh, literally retraces his father's footsteps and potentially breaks the cycle of violence. Do you see that possibility? Um, yeah, I, 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 I guess I do. But don't forget that Kubrick struggled for a long time with what he was going to do with this, and so did King. Um, they, they weren't quite sure how this thing should end. In fact, in Kubrick, when Kubrick was filming The Shining, I mean, he kills Halloran. Now, you know, the fact that Halloran dies in this film, whereas in King's novel, he's the the white knight who comes to the rescue that Wendy dreams about in one of those chapters, one of those late chapters that she's going to be wrecked. I think the line that King uses is that she will be rescued by a a soap opera Galahad. The fact that he gets killed in Kubrick's film, you know, well, if he's going to kill Halloran, he could kill this this kid too. I mean, you know, think of think of how this film ends. They're driving off in the middle of a blizzard in a snowcat that presumably Wendy has never driven before. It's the middle of the night. They're both both the child and the the mother have just gone through a horrific experience. The father is in the maze, frozen, and they're leaving the ghosts of that hotel and all the things that they've witnessed in the last 45 minutes of this film. I, I don't, I'm not sure that's such an optimistic ending. <laughs> they got a long way to Sidewinder. In this vehicle, in the middle of the night, in the middle of a Rocky Mountain uh, winter. Mm. That's true. Did you hear about the epilogue that he cut from the film? I don't know that. No, what happened? It it actually uh, was playing in theaters opening day. Interesting. Kubrick and Kubrick told the studio it's unnecessary. Let's cut it out. So they actually went from theater to theater and removed it. So people wow. that saw it opening opening day got to see this closing scene where uh, the Barry Pepper, the the uh, manager of the hotel, yeah, I forget the character's name. Uh, 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 um, um, give me a second. Uh, Ullman. 
Allman, you're right. He Allman. come he goes into he goes into the hospital where Wendy is saying uh, and kind of says some empty words to her. We found no evidence of blah blah blah. This kind of activity in the hotel, and, and then walks outside. And Danny's playing with his toy trucks on the on the carpet out in the hallway of the hospital. Says a couple words to him. Uh, turns to the door and then turns back to Danny and says, "Oh, Danny, I almost forgot," and tosses him the tennis ball. <laughs> nice touch. And then the, yeah, and then the movie ends. It's a little chilling, yeah. But yeah, I, and I think it maybe for Kubrick's taste, it would have spelled it out too, too plainly. Maybe he liked the ambiguity of that closing shot with the framed photograph. Yeah, great, um, great idea not to have done that. I mean, great mm-hmm. idea to have cut that. Kubrick was right to cut that. Um, the the framed photograph, and of course, you've read that that piece that I wrote about that, you know, where I talk mm-hmm. about, you know, that you've always been the caretaker. Right. Uh, and, and the fact that Jack is in the attire of a maitre d', you know, again, again, coming back to that argument that I that I really, I really push because I've been wanting to write this thing, that chapter for 20 years, uh, where Jack is now uh, a working member of the hotel. Mm-hmm. But not in a position, not in a position of power, in the way that uh, the management runs the hotel. But again, working like Delbert Grady or or uh, Lloyd the bartender, in a position where he's kind of in the middle of all the action, but always the servant. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I, I just saw a, a frame grab of that last shot. The other night, and I, for the first time, I noticed that he's holding something in his hand. There's something he's pressing with his thumb in that. I don't know if it's a note or something. It's another Kubrickism to be decoded. <laughs> it's a, it's another that? part of the maze, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, it's endless, another part endless. of the maze. Well, you know, I I think you know, I mean, look at look at that photograph again at the end that ends that film, and 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 there he is. Everybody's coupled up. Mm. You know, everybody's in a in formal attire. It's obviously the July Fourth ball, and they're all you know they're all having they're all in high spirits, but everybody's coupled up except Jack, and he's in the center of the fa- in the photograph with his arms outstretched, almost welcoming. You know, here he here he is, the maitre d', you know, the party planner, the, you know, the guy who's going to lead the celebration. But again, I think it's really interesting to contextualize that photograph in light of the series of 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 moments all through the film that suggest that Jack wants desperately uh, to to, uh, to to join the the ruling class of the hotel and not just be viewed as, you know, another version of Delbert Grady. And the hotel, the hotel is constantly seducing him to make him believe that that's possible. You know, Grady says to him when, when he spills the avocado on him, Grady says to, Grady says to him in the, in the hotel bathroom, you're the important one, sir. You're the important one. And 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 even even Lloyd the bartender says your money's no good here. The orders from the house, and and you know Jack continually wants desperately to be part of that of that ruling class, and yet all through the film, every time the hotel seduces Jack with the promise of upward mobi- upward social mobility, they take it away from him. The beautiful woman turns into the hag. Mm-hmm. Delbert Grady humiliates him in the in the in the locker room. Looks like your wife has gotten the best of you. Perhaps we've underestimated her. Even in the red bathroom, that scene moves very clearly from one where Jack Torrance is in a position of dominance and power to one where Lloyd, uh, where where Delbert Grady takes over the position of power, and even the way the camera films it, where where uh, Delbert Grady is is pictured in the frame of a mirror with the camera looking up at him, while Jack is always crouching rat-like beneath him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
suggests again the differential in power. Mm. God, there's no more fascinating movie for me. <laughs> it's, yeah, it, it's it's rich. It's really rich, but it's but what makes it so rich, Jamie, is it's subtle. It's so yeah. damn subtle. Mm-hmm. And that's you why know, a lot of people complain about it too, Jamie. That nothing happens. Nothing ever happens. Right. You know, compare this film to something like Poltergeist, another haunted house film. You know, this is a film where it's very subdued. There's lots at two two hours and forty forty minutes, and you know there's a lot of moments in this film that build and build and build, and nothing happens. <laughs> 